G'day and welcome to Lunch Money. Lunch Money is your online and social media home for uh, special situations, workouts and capital raising professionals. My name is Nick Samios. I'm the fund manager at Hermes Capital and I am your Lunch Money podcast host. Um, today we're going to be talking economics. Um, just uh, catching the train into work this morning and flicking through uh, all the news. Uh, Chris Joy wrote an article talking about interest rates and all the pressure that uh, that's putting on businesses and small business insolvencies. Uh, the US bond, the US 10-year bond rate spiked up apparently to uh, as high as it's been since uh, uh, pre-GFC. Um, the, the Aussie dollar is down around the 64 cent mark, which is, uh, which is really low. Uh, Australian interest rates, where are they going? Are they going back up? Are they going down? Are they staying where they are? We've got, we've got building collapses, but uh, on one hand, we've got these construction companies collapsing, but on the other hand, we're bringing in a million people and we've got to put them all in houses. So I don't know whether or not to be bullish or bearish on the housing sector. Um, and unemployment spiked up a little bit. So I'm not an economist. I've got no idea what to make of all of this. And so uh, we're very privileged today to have Warren Hogan, um, who is economic advisor to Judo Bank, uh, joining us to try and make sense of it all. So thank you very much, Warren. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for having me on the show. You're very welcome. Um, and uh, what, what, uh, what's, what's been the highlight of your week? What, what, what's uh, taking up your time? Um, well, apart from uh, winning the team comp in the golf yesterday, um, yeah. they played well. Um, the wage numbers, I think, this week were pretty important. That's our quarterly wage price index for Australia, and they showed some pretty modest increases in wages in the, in the three months to 30 June, which you know is continuing to be a really interesting feature, um, you know, of our economy. The fact that our wages growth has failed to really accelerate on the back of what we would consider tight labor markets, excessive demand for labor, and of course, a great incentive for people to sort of, you know, ask for a wage increase being this massive increase in the cost of living over the last three years. Very much unlike what's happening in other countries where wages growth is up over 5% and of some concern. Um, ours is extremely well-contained, well-behaved, and I fear that Really, what it reflects is a big chunk of the workforce, low and middle income earners, stuck on two and three year EBAs, and they're just going backwards big time. So, oh, you think so? Yeah, look, uh, I do. It, it's kind of fixed price contract dilemma that builders are facing, except uh, except it's it's applying to employees as well. I think that's a great analogy. Actually, I hadn't thought of it that way, um, but that's right. And you know, it's this highly regulated labour market we have in this country, which ostensibly is all about protecting the worker. Um, but in terms of this recent episode of the last few years, it's, it's hurt them because they haven't been able to have the flexibility to renegotiate their wages every year or in some cases more often given just how much the cost of living has gone up. And so what's happened is they're stuck on two and three year contracts at say two, 3%. Meanwhile, the cost of living has gone up by between 15 and 20% over the last three years and they've gone... Backwards, the average real wage in Australia now is back to where it was in 2009. Um, that means in the space of a couple of years, we've wow. given up almost a decade of hard work. I mean, you only really ever get real in wage increases across the economy of one to one and a half percent a year. It's a slog. It's, gr it's a grind. And then to give it all up in the space of a couple of years is, I think, major policy failure on the part of our government and RBA, basically.
I mean, what you're saying is interesting, but on the other hand, you can't get people. So how does that reconcile with the fact that it's so hard to, to find staff? Yeah, well, it is an interesting feature that the labour turnover is, is is still low. It's turned up a bit, but we just don't have a workforce that's willing to pack up and go next door. Um, job stability is seemingly um, a very, very important feature for Australians over the last 15 years. And the only thing I can put that down to is that we're heavily indebted and we, 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 we would prefer to see ourselves go backwards than risk um, wow. Wow. risk uh, our commitments, which are, you know, the, those mortgage commitments and so forth. So and, and high rents now. So there's almost a severe risk aversion you could read into that. So it's a bird in the hand. That's the employees are saying, well, it's a bird in the hand. I know that, uh, yeah, the mortgage is tight, but at least I know that I've been here for three years and, and I'm pretty safe. Is that, is that what you mean? Yeah, something like that. I mean, the labour turnover in this country collapsed in the last 20 years and maybe we're just out of practice of being willing to move jobs. Um, but certainly you saw in the UK and the US that as the, as the cost of living surged in 2021, um, their more flexible labour markets meant that their wages went up. Now, I don't know their data and their market in detail, but I imagine their turnover went up and employers were forced to to stump up um, uh, because people were walking out the door. And I'm sure that's happened in many industries in Australia. It's just not happening to the same degree. And um, therefore, we're sort of going backwards, um, which, you know, I think actually the other way to look at it is <clears throat> because we're more regulated, things take slower to adjust here. And we could see labour costs continuing to push higher right through the next couple of years as people need to play catch up quite rightly. Um, and, you know, we've talked about insolvency and why it's been low. And obviously the traditional insolvency mechanism is banks and debt. Mm. that have been sort of curtailed in the last decade by low interest rates. Then the ATO decided to step out of the game in the pandemic and have only just started to come back. The one feature I think of the next five years that could put pressure on a lot of businesses and inability to pay the market wage rate. And um, if businesses can't afford to pay workers the wage rate that's in the market and stay in business, then that could be one of the other triggers that could get insolvency starting to rise. Well, yeah, I mean, I know we've got a whole bunch of slides to get through, but one of the, um, the last time that you and I spoke on, on lunch money, it's kind of was mid mid pandemic really, but I remember you, you know, I was saying, you know, where are all the insolvencies, and and you showed us a graph of the savings. So you know, I think you said there was 150, you know, billion or whatever it was in household savings and also in business savings. So there was a, this enormous hollow logs uh, in the economy soaking up the pain. So are you saying that mate, certainly the business level those hollow logs are still there at the moment, and that when you know eventually the wage pressure is going to happen. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, there's certainly been a significant amount of support that's helped provide buffers, um, and that's to good and bad businesses and good and bad households. Um, and it certainly could be part of the story about why businesses that either need to be fundamentally restructured or go uh, haven't because they've been getting this support. I mean, I, I identified this as an issue prior to the pandemic where our interest rates being well below what you'd call a natural interest rate sort of curtailed that 
capital turnover mechanism, which business insolvency is a critical part of. I mean, if we want a market economy and the benefits that it brings in terms of competition and innovation and rising living standards, you also need to turn capital over. And the discipline of that is historically the interest rate. Um, we started to lose that, obviously, in the pandemic. The ATO stepped away, the bank stepped away. So, yeah, there's buffers there and, you know, we're starting to see insolvencies rise, but mm. there's potential for them to rise quite a bit over the next few years. Yeah, I mean, Chris Joy's little piece today was saying that insolvency was up because of interest rates. And, I'm, you know, I'm not one to argue with Chris. Uh, he's a very smart uh, guy, but I think it's more the ATO pushing people over the edge. But uh, I mean, on the subject of interest rates, uh, Ian Hyman's just uh, whacked in a question, and I don't want to get ahead of your uh, what, what you want to talk about. But he's saying uh, why have major banks completely misread the interest rate environment since the commencement of COVID, uh, when NBLs have been able to predict movements? I guess he means non-bank lenders there with much greater accuracy. Geez, I don't know that they've been able to predict them more accurately. Uh, predictions from the banks. I mean, he's really getting to probably the RBA has been the biggest uh, the biggest um, uh, culprit when it comes to predicting rates. Uh, I guess no one could predict how much the government was going to print money. Mm. Yeah, oh, the RBA shouldn't be in the game of predicting rates. Um, yeah. And that has got them into a lot of trouble and that's why um, Phil Lowe's last meeting is about to happen in a few weeks' time. Um, yeah. yeah, I've been... Quite. I mean, I, I basically have had a cash rate forecast above 4% for over a year now. And when I yeah. first put that out, I was seen as some crazy sort of <laughs> extremist. Um, and that was the lowest possible number I could put into my forecast, given fundamental economics. Um, right. I have been incredibly surprised by how banks have dragged their feet on this. I think it's because they're obviously not keen on being unpopular, even though that's yeah. part of their job. And also, <laughs> you know, I think I, one of the, the things that has most disturbed me is the Commonwealth Bank's economists. So um, they were talking about rate cuts, whether or not it was to follow a rate hike, but rate cuts three or four months ago by the end of this year, and I think they're still emphasising the point that rates will come down next year. Now, let's just put this in some context. We currently have inflation three times the target or two times the target at around 6%. And the thing that's most disturbing is they are one of the top 15 mortgage books in the world. They probably have right. the biggest variable rate mortgage book in the world. And their economists with inflation twice the central bank's target banned um, are saying there should be rate cuts. Now, if they just took a little step back and had to think about how that presented, then that's crazy. Nick, we've just lost you for some reason, or I've lost you anyway. I'll keep going then. Um, so look, you know, it's been a, the, the fundamentals of the interest rate cycle and prediction have been tricky because there's two important channels that which you sort of try and judge how monetary policy or the short-term interest rates affecting the economy. One is the nominal change in rates, i.e. the 400 basis points of increases we've seen this cycle in the last 12 months or so um, have been big. And that's what everyone's been focused on. That has a cash flow effect. That's what means we have to pay more for our debt. But an economist really needs to also take into consideration the level of real interest rates. And that's the end game for economic models and for the, and I believe for the economy. And of course, we've still got negative real interest rates. We may get a zero real interest rate, i.e. 
RBA cash rate above the core inflation rate by the end of this year. But history shows that we have never in this country or any other got inflation under control with a real interest rate below 2%. In fact, it's had to go up to 3 or 4%. Glenn Stevens had to do that in 2007, and that's happened all around the world. So in terms of misreading this tightening cycle, I think there's been way too much focus on the nominal channel, that is the nominal increase in interest rates, what that'll do to funding costs, and not enough appreciation of the need to look at where the real interest rate is. And of course, the other thing is, is the politics. And when I say politics, I'm just not meaning about Canberra. I'm talking about the whole community. And this country has got a severe bias against higher rates. Um, the voice of uh, not wanting higher rates is is extreme. Oh, I think we might get you back, Nick. Are you back? I'm back. Yeah, you can hear me again. Yes. Yep, gotcha. Yeah, fantastic. I don't know what happened there. Listen, one of the things that you said was, uh, you, you know, you talk about the disparity between uh, inflation and interest rates, right? Because it, traditionally, interest rates are higher than inflation. Um, the other thing is that I remember, you know, I'm sort of a, I remember the early the early years of, you know, when Paul Keating was treasurer and, you know, you, you always used to hear about the Reserve Bank defending the dollar, Um and basically, that used to mean that if the Americans put their rates up, we had to put our rates up. But at the moment, our rates are lower than uh, the US, I think lower than the UK. Uh, we see that the Aussie dollar is down at 64 cents. So is defending the dollar just not a thing anymore? Is that, am, I, am I out of touch? <coughs> Excuse me. Um, yeah, look, in terms of the current level, I don't think they're too concerned. I mean, you don't need to defend the currency in a floating exchange rate world, which we're in. Uh, because what you're looking for is that exchange rate to respond to fundamentals and to support the economy, whether that means being really high when the economy is inflationary or being really low when it's not. And the Australian dollars proved to be very effective. But in this instance, and it's been the case for a number of years, the Aussie dollars, two main drivers are commodity prices, what we get for our exports and the interest rate differential to the rest of the world, which is a fundamental for all countries. And then basically going in exactly the opposite direction. We've got the biggest negative interest rate differential we've ever had to the United States at 140 basis points. And the models tell you that that means the Aussie US exchange rate should probably be about 50 cents. Right. But on the flip side, commodity prices are very, very high. And the model tells you that the Aussie dollar should probably be at 90 cents or even parity with the US dollar given where commodity prices are. And of course, the result is we've ended up with something in between. What the RBA is doing, though, is they're leaving us very vulnerable to a downturn in the global economy, the Chinese economy, the demand for commodities and the price of commodities. If commodity prices fall 30% and our interest rate differential remains where it is, the Aussie dollar will be trading with a five in front of it before we can wow. blink. Yeah. And that's what we're starting to see. When the RBA gave up the ghost on another rate hike at the August meeting, the, the Aussie dollar has basically been falling ever since. Uh, it's been very orderly. They only yeah. tend to intervene in the market if it's disorderly. Um, and of course, they're going to, I think there's a scenario that shows global growth falling, our growth being weak, but our currency falling right out of bed and the RBA is going to have some tough decisions to potentially make. Now, that, that scenario might not come to pass, but um, that would be the defend the dollar story and that would be just as really the fundamental process there is to stop the inflationary impulse that a big fall in the currency could have. Okay. Well, look, I'll let you, you've got some slides there you wanted to share. Yeah, sure. I can just go through a couple of key points. Yep. Um, yep. 
So I'll do that now. Um, sorry, Thank you very much, Ian Hyman, for your uh, for your question as well. And uh, I've got some. I've had some uh, other people that have emailed some questions in a little bit earlier, and we'll get to those after uh, after we've seen your slides. Okay. Well, uh, kindly brought to you by Judo Bank today. Very good. Very good. Okay. Well, I'll get started. So, I mean, when we talk, Nick, I think one of the issues is. Um, it seems very comfortable now that the RBA has pretty much done all their tightening, that inflation is projected to come all the way down to target. The economy's slowing and everything's going to be hunky-dory. Um, and that sort of defies, I suppose, the historical sort of experience, which we just alluded to, is how can Australian interest rates top out when we've got just as much inflation as everyone else um, at a level so much lower than what you're seeing in the rest of the world. So the US Fed funds rates at 5.5. Um, I think the Bank of England's 5.25, Canada's 5, New Zealand's 5.50. These are similar economies with similar inflation. The reality is the RBA got themselves into trouble with their forward guidance and they're trying to make up for it. They're trying not to raise rates more than they have to. They're going for gold. They're going for this narrow path. They're taking no no risk out on insurance, no insurance out on the risk that inflation's higher. So look, I'll just go through some data on what we're seeing out there right now. These are purchasing managers indices, which are a very good track on the world, on any economy, including Australia. Judo Bank now sponsors them for Australia. You can see on the left, the big economies. Uh, Europe's really slowing now. Um, they are dead set on getting rid of this inflation. The ECB raised rates to just under the Australian rate, hence why the euro is so strong compared to the Aussie dollar. If you'd said 10 years ago that the European interest rate could be higher than the Australian interest rate, I would have told you never. Yeah. Um, but the Europeans know what inflation does. I mean, this inflation is not just about real wages, living standards. This is about the functioning of our economy. And I would say... Inflation is the biggest threat to free and open societies that we have seen in the modern democratic world of the last couple hundred years. The Europeans know that. They don't need thousands of years of dream time to tell them. <laughs> they know from just three generations what inflation does to a society and it doesn't end well. So they're doing it. They're, they're willing to, they're more than happy to have a recession in the short term to get rid of this inflation. Totally the opposite approach to Australia. Um, China, they're slowing by more than this PMI tells you. They've got a lot of troubles, which you're seeing in the papers now. Um, they're suffering essentially from what happens to a command economy once it gets to a certain level of sophistication. The next phase after that is developing domestic markets, entrepreneurship, private allocation of capital, none of which is feasible under a severely tight communist regime, what we're seeing in China. So they're in trouble. The question is, do they have any growth in the foreseeable future and do they have a financial crisis? Um, their biggest problem that's new that doesn't get talked about enough is that they benefited massively from the demand for stuff that came out of the pandemic, the demand for goods, manufactured goods. Right, right. And that's all now peeling right off. So that's what's right. really hurting them. Everyone was and sitting that, at home ordering stuff on Amazon. Whether it was a jigsaw puzzle or a whippersnipper, um, they gave it to the world. I mean, other manufacturers like Japan and Taiwan and Korea and in Germany, they all benefited, but nothing like China, and they're not feeling it as badly as China is now. Right. So they've got that added to their long-term property problem, financial issues and local government problems. They've got some real issues. Anyway, so the global economy, um, that comment on China aside, is looking like going 
into a mild downturn. Um, this talk that started with our treasurer in October last year about global recessions that you've heard in financial markets from, from you know, week in, week out for nine months just doesn't seem to be materialising. It could well. Um, the economies are now slowing again, but we're not seeing a devastating collapse in economic activity. Um, I'll skip that. Just to highlight global inflation, uh, we're at 5.9 five, for core. US is down at 4.7, I think. Canada's even lower. Uh, these other countries are higher. So we're sort of right in the middle of the pack there. Yet our interest rates are the lowest. So that's just to highlight that point I was making before. Yep. Here in Australia, this is the major Im imbalance in the economy. You can see the population growth is surging on the back of immigration. This is from the ABS labour force numbers. It will start to slow down again, although we've got to actually see what happens with immigration because it seems to be coming through thick and fast. And, and why wouldn't you want to come here with the, the queues long? Um, and what we've got is a massive excess demand for labour. Um, this is job vacancies. The job ads numbers that are seeing coming out aren't falling that much. They're very high. And what that means is that as people come in, they get jobs. And that's what we saw up until the figure we got yesterday where we actually saw a decline in employment. I'd be careful about reading any one monthly number. They're very volatile month to month. I mean, I mean just on that, just on that, I mean, would you be bullish on the construction centre, uh, uh, sector? I mean, we need to build all these, uh, you know, all, all places for these people that are coming into the country to live. Uh, and yet we're seeing collapses in residential builders. So. Yeah, well, the, the stress in the building side is, is is now, so I think, sort of pretty much worked its way through, even though you're hearing names going under to this day. Um, the process of the fixed price contracting seems to have, you know, should should be out of the system now and we're sort of having to rebirth and reconfigure companies and all that sort of thing. But I think the worst is behind us. New contracts are being reset at new cost bases um, and construction costs are now starting to ease back. So um, not actually fall much. You're getting some inputs falling. And, of course, what we saw, you know, we had a big lift in immigration in 2006 to 2008 that stuck. Every year we increased, you know, the number of people coming in increased by a lot, about eighty to 100,000, and then we stayed there. And that led to eventually an East Coast apartment building boom. And that's how we housed all this extra population in the last 10 years. And that was only after a period of undersupply, in sort of 2011 to 2014-15, which pushed prices up, um, and then all that construction came through. And, of course, the, the, the pandemic was the, the great head fake where we thought we were going to have less population and less demand for housing because the borders were closed, but that just didn't happen. Uh, headship rates fell, uh, more people had jobs, and then, of course, now the borders are open. So we've got to build a lot of houses, and whether Albo and the crew throw extra money at state governments to free up land. The reality is we're going to have to see another East Coast apartment building boom. That's just a reality, and that's going to be a major economic force in Australia in the next four or five years. The question is whether it gets going in the next 12 months or the next 24 months. But it'll happen eventually. It's just how quickly we can do it and what pressure and pain is brought into the housing sector in the meantime, particularly the rental markets. And... Uh, that's why this strong sort of employment and strong demand for labour, um, you know, is feeding income and, and demand in the economy, not least for housing. Um, I guess, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, over wine and cheese, probably not on this podcast, we can talk about um, 
the, the new sort of equity government participation in equity and what what that would do from an economist's point of view to house prices. But we, we might just park that for, uh, for now. Yeah, yeah. I can come back to sort of my latest valuations of the house prices. Just, but just a few issues that have been talked about later. This is the level of retail spend, consumer goods, and then hospitality is just cafes, restaurants, and takeaways. This is from the ABS report. It's the monthly spend in nominal terms. So inflation does affect it. But just to highlight, yes, we've had some small declines in consumer spending, which the RBA says a substantial slowdown. But as you can see from this, the, the, the level of spend is miles above pre-pandemic levels. Um, and that's this has got to come down. And you know, whether it's because it, the economy is slowing more generally, I mean, it's we we just how many whippersnippers can you stick in your garage sort of thing yeah um so that's the consumer it has to weaken further but the level of spend in the economy is still extremely high can i just throw up a couple of uh let me see if i can do that yeah th this was in the papers uh you know because i've in, in anticipation of our discussion today i've been sort of tracking things so you know the, the obviously jb hi-fi and rebel and super cheap auto they're big retailers in australia um, you know, they're, 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 their figures are strong, but they are reporting sort of declines in in uh, in sales. So I guess that kind of ties in with what you were saying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I heard Jerry Harvey earlier this year say, look, don't compare the figures to last year or even the year before. Our numbers are down, but they're still miles above 2019 levels. And Jerry's rarely sort of that generous. So, and he knows what he's doing, obviously. So this sure is does. the figure, you know, <laughs> In a community that's ever after growth, sure, this is a problem, but we, we've got to take into consideration the reality of the pandemic. And as you can see there, we've had a structural shift up in the amount of spend because of all the stimulus and direct payments to people. And uh, it's just not sustainable. It's bad for the environment, buying all this stuff. Um, I'd love to see the waste collection you know, statistics in Australia. I'm sure it's gone through the roof in the last couple of years um yeah that's exactly it so just moving on to get through these pictures this is the judo bank pmis they're slowing manufacturing slowed first on the right below 50 is sort of a contraction you need to get all the way down to readings of around 40 for recession so we, we're nowhere near recession um okay that's that that's your call we're nowhere near recession so all this stuff about recessions around the corner and no, but I mean, you know, when the people start using what we use as the technical definition of recession, which is two quarters of negative economic growth, which has major shortcomings anyway, but then they start applying that to sectors, like saying there's a consumer recession. Well, right. there's been a consumer recession in most countries around the world for the last 18 months yeah. because of the high level of spending that happened through the pandemic. So... Yeah. Is that a recession or is that just a, a normalization? Um, as you can see, this is a measures of the business community and they're at best going through a soft landing. And if anything, the manufacturing side's showing a little bit of a tick up in the last few months. So that's good news. There's no doubt there's stress at the margins because we've got so many zombies out there. We've got so many companies that are surviving on the skin of their teeth uh, that wouldn't in a more competitive environment. But the broad business community have got extraordinarily healthy balance sheets and their markets are still growing at a reasonable rate. Yeah, well, the um, ATO, yeah, okay. I was going to say the ATO, well, the ATO is sort of in the process of mopping up uh, a lot of those zombie companies now after sort of having uh, let them go um, 
through throughout the pandemic. But 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 yeah, I'll let you keep going. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think that's you know one of the key theses here is that we are going to see insolvencies go up quite a bit because, and it's all healthy and it's all in the long run interest. You see, the problem with a bad recession, particularly a financial crisis like we had in the early nineties is when you de deny credit to creditworthy businesses and then they can't survive because they got no working capital or they can't cover their, their debts for a six or nine month period when the economy is soft. That's what you want to avoid. This thing like that. This is companies yeah. that should have been wrapped up a long time ago. Yeah, um, yeah, the inflation yeah, yeah. story here is still, you know, high, but the outlook's reasonably constructive. I just note services inflation still sort of peaking out. They're showing signs of coming down, but we have no idea whether that's going to come down to five, four, three, two, one. The overall consensus in the RBA want it down at three within 25, which is quite pedestrian pace, but they're comfortable with that. I just point okay. out what I call a not. Sorry, Nick. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, can I just ask a, a sort of a person on the street question? Uh, I mean, you're talking about those inflation figures there, but, you know, everyone's experience when they go to the supermarket is that everything seems to be up a lot more than just three and a half percent. So how, how do they, how do, how do you recognize, uh, reconcile your supermarket experience with those numbers? Well, the, the inflation is high. It's six now. Um, I'm saying 3% by 2025. That's a forecast. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, I understand that. But even 6%. Yeah, it feels no, like, that's, yeah. That's, and that's because the consumer price index is made up of a basket of goods and services that reflects the average consumption across the whole community. But there's a whole bunch of stuff in there that people only buy once every five years or even longer. Right. And, you know, that's where you've got to look at this sort of core essentials cons consumption. And the essentials were all a lot higher than the overall. You know, essentials CPI got up to almost 10% at the peak. And I, I didn't actually look at the last figure, but I'd say it's only just down to about seven. Right. So it, and then, and then, you know, so people where, do, where, where, where do we find those numbers? Is that just something that economists have in their bottom drawer or is that? <laughs> well, you can calculate it from the, you know, from the um, index. Right. So, so, yeah, ABS, so just to go back, just to make sure I heard you correctly, you're saying essentials inflation is how much? Uh, I think, I don't know what it is right now. I'd say it'd be, be between six and seven. Right. Um, but it got up as high as I think nine, almost 10. Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting because not many people talk about essentials inflation, but but that would, that, 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 num that like something close to 10 is something that feels like what we're, what we experience when we go down to Woolies or Coles. Yeah, no, that's right. And yeah, then, look, yeah. people, when they go to Woolies or Coles, they tend to notice the stuff that's up a lot and ignore the stuff that hasn't changed. So there's a bit yeah. of money illusion, yeah. to use yeah. the term extremely loosely. Yeah. So, look, the thing that worries me that the RBA is taking no insurance out is what I call the 1970s risk, and that's what happened, what we saw happen in the 1970s where the inflation came through in the early 70s. They jumped on it after having a long period of low rates, no, worrying that you know raising rates a lot would hurt the economy. They did some rate hikes that did slow the economy. They thought the whole thing was all done and dusted and they could cut rates once the economy started to slow. They did that, but then the economy bounced. They didn't tighten quickly enough. And of course, inflation didn't go all the way back down to the desirable rate, whether that's two or three. And then it started to accelerate again. And it didn't go from four to six to eight. It went from four to eight to 12 to 15 in the late 70s. 
And yeah, that's what the yeah, ECB yeah. is worried about. That's what the Fed is worried about. That's what the Bank of England is worried about. That's yeah. what the Bank of Canada is worried about. That's what the Reserve Bank of New Zealand is worried about. Yeah. It's what the yeah. RBA does not appear to be at all concerned about and is in taking out no insurance against that risk. Yeah. Um, well, well, I mean, yeah, just judging by the colour of your beard there, Warren, um, I, I, you would remember as well as I do when... You know, when interest rates were, you know, well into the double digits, uh, and inflation was 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 in was was in double digits as well, and it just seems to be such a distant memory. But uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe there's not enough Gen Xs and baby boomers at the Reserve Bank. Yeah, look, I just think it's they um, they they've been they've been behind the eight ball since they since the pandemic. So from what I can tell is. The pandemic had a big impact on the senior people at the RBA. They overcooked it. Um, they admit that now. They did that guidance. The guidance was, I, I was writing in the AFR at the time that this is really stupid. Um, I remember people at the RBA and people who used to be at the RBA who are very intelligent people, very good economists, say to me, well, if the economy turns out to be better, then no one will care about the guidance. And I just thought... Mm -hmm. They're basically lying to us, and you're saying mm. that successful policy means that we bullshitted you. Mm. That doesn't make sense. What, why is it? What, why is it that you mentioned before the economists at the uh, at the Commonwealth Bank? So obviously you're not frightened of of uh, a, a bit of confrontation. I mean, why is it that when we listen to the to most nearly all other economists, they're just not willing to talk as bluntly as you are? What, what, I mean. Well, look, it's a very uncertain world and it's a very complex thing, the economy. We've all made lots of errors in our judgments around the future. The future's hard and anything, let alone forecasting, a very complex thing. I mean, apart from a nuclear submarine, I don't think there's too many more things more <laughs> complex in our society than the overall economy. Yeah. So they're being naturally cautious. They're like, there is a scientific element to it. You can see it with the climate scientists in the 10, 15 years ago who... Yeah. We're all very conservative in their judgments about when this would happen, when it all seems to be happening much more quickly. Mm. And of course, then there's, uh, we all learned about unconscious bias and it came to workplaces and gender equality. Mm. Well, there's mm. also a thing called unconscious bias in just about anything in life. And most of these people work for financial institutions that don't particularly want to see rates go up. So yeah. you add all the, the, the forces that are influencing these economists together and um, they're all sort of pushing them to have a lower rate trajectory than others. The reason, I mean, I don't really have any skin in the game on any of this. I just got to be as accurate as I can. I don't have anything else that I can hang my hat on. But the other thing is, as an economist who's sort of been around for a while, who also has an interest in history, I know that inflation is the devil for a free society. Yeah. And, I, yeah. and I just, yeah. I, I think it's worth taking out insurance against... We're not taking out insurance because we're protecting people who went too far in the pandemic. Some of them wealthy people, yeah. some of them not wealthy yeah. people. And yeah. the reason the RBA is even harder, it's even harder for the RBA to put those people to the side um, is because they were seemingly encouraging it with their guidance. So it's it's a bit of a concoction. I hope I'm wrong. I'm not forecasting yeah. Yeah. a disaster. Yeah. I'm just yeah. pointing out the risk. Can I? Can, do you mind if I just throw up a few questions? Because I'm just mindful of the of the clock. Yeah. Uh, shall I stop the share now and go? To well, questions? well, I uh, know. Yeah, that's no, okay. You leave it there, but I can I can throw some questions up. Um, and I would just say to anybody watching live, uh, you're able to put a question in the chat, 
and thank you very much. Ian's already done that. But I had a few guys that wanted to ask questions and they weren't able to watch us live and they asked us, uh, they asked if I could throw some questions up. So the first one here is uh, from Matthew Atkin. Now, Matthew is uh, a finance broker. I'm sure the uh, I'm sure he refers lots of great business to Judo Bank. Uh, he's also the president of CAFPA, the Commercial Asset Finance Brokers Association. And he's a fan, Warren. He's, he's one of your fans. He says, I, I right. love Warren's insights. For months, he has been saying 4.35 is the peak. What's his view on this now? Unemployment appears to be moving upwards and inflation appears to be coming down. Would he still raise one more time to put a full stop on the inflation issue? Yeah, it's a good question. And he's obviously um, he heard what I said, whether it's the Judo Weekly call or something. But um, yeah. Mondays, he says. Like, he listens on Mondays. Is that the yeah, yeah, yeah. Do a call yeah. with the broker. So um, yeah, look. The, the, the employment numbers were soft, the wage numbers were soft, so it, it does make it hard for them. I mean, the next inflation figure is the big one for me. I think 1 July, a lot of prices went up. I think the Q2 numbers were a little bit um, soft uh, and not representative of the underlying trend. I still would because I don't think they're taking out any insurance, but whether or not they can with the optics of this data softening um is another thing so look it's a line ball call I, I think the the debate around interest rates now is not whether or not they go one more time which is my view and is now the view of the market that they or whether they go one more time or not whether the peak is 4.1 or 435 right. i think the real issue that we've all got to think about is actually does it get the job done when we get back from summer holidays next february are we going to go oh no our rates are 150 points below everywhere else in the world and that's not working. And yeah. the new central bank, you know, the new RBA governor, Michelle Bullock, has to go up by 100 points next year. I'm not saying that's the view. I'm just saying that's where the risk lies. So, Well, well you, mentioned, uh, you mentioned the governor there. I think my our next question, actually, the one after, yeah, so Michael Ford, who is the CEO of Castaway Forecasting, and he's a wonderful lunch money guest as well. He's a fascinating guy. He runs businesses, but he also runs uh, forecasting packaging software, which I'm sure, again, his forecasts find their way to the desks of Judo Bank. Um, in the AFR of 30 July, Warren argued for the RBA to take action on rates before Michelle Bullock takes over in late September to give her some breathing space. Surely the economic well-being of the nation, i.e. making the right call on rates at the right time for the economy, should be far higher priority than giving an incoming governor a comfortable introduction to her new job. Oh, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt that, of course, but when these things are a judgment call, and my judgment is, you know, that we probably need the rate to be a little bit higher. I mean, it's more, a, I mean, it gives a breathing space, but the point I was making was more, you know, Phil Lowe should feel like he's handing over the reins with an interest rate that, is not miles away from where it should be. And I would argue um, that the cash rate should be probably closer to five, um, yeah. but at the very least 435, and he should get it done and then leave her to be able to sit back and have a look and watch and, you know, this extended pause. But I'm not at all conceding that we want to be not doing the right thing by the nation and our monetary policy for some secondary consideration like that. And look, there is other ways of viewing this whole thing. I, you know, I was suggesting that hand over the rate at the right level. And that means she doesn't necessarily have to move in the first few months. And that might save her a bit of negative PR straight off the bat. But guess what? Maybe she wants to come in first meeting and send a message to everyone in the broader community mm. uh, and the markets and banking mm. and finance 
Mm. I'm serious, and she wants to hike first meeting up. I mean, new, you can... do the new new CEO syndrome. Get out, get in, and uh, just do all the gunning and cleaning in your first your first day on the job, and then it's all up from there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that, there's all different ways to dice it, but yeah. at no yeah. time do I not think about what the right level of interest rates is. I think that's people who don't yeah. like my argument just trying to have a crack at it. <laughs> okay. Now, another another guy who I'm sure is a friend of Judo Bank is Greg Malone. He's a director at GNH Financial. Can Warren explain what impacts Australian businesses could possibly experience with interest rate pressure? I mean, interest rates is everybody's talking about interest rates, aren't they? Could possibly experience with interest rate pressure, a falling dollar and potentially slow down in the Chinese economy. What difficulties could it create for Australia and how, uh, and also what opportunities could arise from these factors occurring simultaneously? So I guess, you, you, yeah, he's asking what are, what are the opportunities uh, in all of this? Yeah, I mean, look, it's a tough one in the sense that, you know, what really, you know, how much change is actually really happening? Um, you know, I mean, the currency coming down obviously gives uh, us a real competitive advantage. Um, and whether that's, you know, our exporters that are outside of mining or, um, or you know, import competing firms. Um, and maybe that's the bigger picture signal here is that, you know, Australia's manufacturing sector, which has shrunk to about 6% of the economy, it's halved in the last 20 years. You know, has that largely been the result of a very high currency driven by high commodity prices and high exports? So that's the bigger picture opportunity is, is potentially in our manufacturing space, both domestically and offshore as our currency comes down. China being in trouble, I don't think it's necessarily going to provide much in the way of opportunities for us. I mean, it's not great for the world if the world's second biggest economy is in trouble yeah. and our biggest trading partner. Um, but look, I mean, I think from a business point of view and whether you're looking at, you know, buying businesses or expanding businesses or mergers, I think this higher rate structure and more tricky environment that we're likely to be in over the next 12 to 18 months will bring opportunities for businesses that can't that don't look like they're going to make it so whether or not they just go out the back door outright because they're that bad or whether or not they're open to takeovers i think there will be a lot of opportunities in that space due to this environment okay now i was just trying to see if i've got one more question here yes uh this is from uh sule anodovic uh from hall chadwick um, Warren, don't you think that unless the unemployment number starts rising significantly, that all other economic indicators are just white noise? Yeah, I mean, it is obviously a very important one and it will very be very much a guide for policy for RBA in particular. Um, but as I said, there's an unusual dynamic here where we've got such high population growth that we're going to see unemployment rise even if the employment doesn't go down much. Um, and that's not necessarily a sign of an economy that's um, that's in trouble. Um, so I, I don't think we want to put other indicators to the side. I think that's always too simplistic. Um, and obviously inflation is still the big one. And while there seems to be a lot of hope that, you know, the worst of the inflation is behind us, I'm not so sure of that. And it might come down to 4% pretty easily over the next six months but is it going to come back to three or even two and a half the midpoint of the rba's target i don't know the answer to that but it's still looking like a bit of a long shot 
So now we need to look at more than just the unemployment rate. A, because the unemployment rate's not probably going to be telling us the same thing about the economy that it normally does because of the population growth. And B, because it's a complex system. So we've got to take into consideration all the factors. Okay. Was there any anything else in your slides that you wanted to touch on? or Look, just this wrap-up. This is just the overall Australian house price index for capital cities um, versus what I call my long-term income anchor, which is essentially a, 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 an anchor based on household income. You can see how expensive property's been uh, for 10 years now. The cycle's been um, driven by interest rates, obviously, but I think there's a structural interest rate story. You can see the correction we've seen has taken a house prices from 30% overvalued down to around 20. It's up a little bit because of the rise in prices this year. So the big question, I mean, this is something that we should all think about, but none of, no one in Australia really wants to, but we talk about a lot of our problems around housing shortages, housing affordability, you know, productivity. I mean, the question that doesn't get asked enough, is this the function of interest rates just being too low for too long? And is there... Uh, a case to be made for putting rates up to a level that's more in line with our fundamentals. It'll cause some distress, but does that give us a, a more robust economic outlook? And I think that's a conversation that doesn't happen. We are living in fear of higher interest rates in this economy constantly. And I think it's um, a big risk for the performance of our economy over the long term. And we certainly can't expect to get any productivity growth if we've got heaps of zombie companies and low rates and speculative money going into inflation protecting investments rather than in the building real businesses so anyway that's my yeah i mean it's yeah i agree i mean it's at some point uh at some point it's got to um it's at some point you know the chickens have to come home to roost but i guess there's not many votes in higher interest rates is there Um, no but there's also this fear that's perpetrated by many public people and economists and i think the central bank's not doing enough to say how higher interest rates aren't necessarily this bad thing. We obviously a very leveraged community, but I, I think there's a strong case to be said that, you know, that our interest rates have been lower than a desirable level for about a decade, longer than that in other countries, but they're coming up more than us now. And that that doesn't make a well-functioning economy. We're very much a zombie sort of, you know, economy that, you know, the competitive, you know, what drives productivity? I mean, Necessity is the mother of all invention. And in Mm. our community, it's competition. Mm. And you don't have competition if there's not the fear of failure. And that's, Mm. of course, insolvency. So I just feel our economic system is not as robust and as competitive as it could be. And a big part of that story is because interest rates have been lower than they should be for a long time. And look, the system's fighting back with this inflation. That's why I think it's no done deal that inflation comes back to the RBA's target and rates have peaked here. But it's obviously not the conversation for right now. That's a bigger structural no. issue. Well, well, the thing is, I think that one of the things also with the with the interest rates being as low as they are is, is and this is kind of what you're saying, but I'm just putting it in different words, is the moral hazard because, um, you know, you, if, you, you know, if you and I are competing and I really should go bust, um, but I haven't gone bust because of government policy settings, um, you know, interest rates and, and government assistance and all the rest of it, that means that, you still got to compete with me, um, and that sort of stifles your innovation and your ability to, to uh, you know, I'm, we're competing for resources and competing for staff. And yeah, yeah. I mean, we haven't heard the term moral hazard used in global central banking for fifteen years now because mm. 
you know, that was seen as this sort of old fuddy-duddy conservative type of way of thinking about the way the world worked and, no, we should just throw money around and bail everyone out. Yeah, and that's yeah. fine if it works, but, you know, there is a question of fairness. We have got a severe intergenerational inequity problem that's emerging. It'll get much worse before it gets better. And I'll just leave you with this thought that the interest rate isn't just the price of money. It is the price of time. And when we undervalue time, should we be surprised that we have a major intergenerational equity issue emerging, wow. one that can threaten the very fabric of our society? Wow. And, uh, you know, I think this is where there's some broader thinking on what interest rates are other than a mortgage repayment or the payment of a business debt. Interest rates are all pervasive across our community as a mechanism. It's just that most people want a linear process to think about it. And they, yeah. in Australia, it's hard to go past mortgages. It's a much more important variable than just mortgage markets and housing markets. Well, that is a very, that is a very powerful insight to, uh, to finish on and to ponder. Um, so thank you very much, Warren. I'll just say thank you to everybody who uh, emailed in their questions a little bit earlier. Uh, and um, So very much appreciate that. And Warren, it's a real privilege to have you on. And I'm very grateful for you uh, giving us your time and sharing your insights. Fantastic. Thanks, Nick. It's been a pleasure. I look forward to the next one. No worries. Take it easy. All, Cheers. All the best, everyone.